Jimmy once told me the fight for freedom is a very lonely pursuit. He said you have to be prepared to be very lonely. Simon Lee was a successful Hong Kong businessman and a columnist at Jimmy Lai's Apple Daily newspaper for over a decade before he was forced to escape Hong Kong. Do you think they can leave the United States alone? No, they cannot. It is in the nature to destroy everything that represents freedom. Tonight, Simon Lee breaks down what is hidden between the lines of Beijing's propaganda messaging. China has a lot of economic problems internally. It is way worse than what we see in 2008 in America. From crippling zero-COVID policies to a collapsing real estate bubble, where's China heading? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Simon Lee, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's my honor. Simon, you're from Hong Kong. You worked for Apple Daily. What are your thoughts right now about what's happening in Hong Kong? Wow. Um, long story short, I think for a very long time, everyone says Hong Kong is the most free place on earth. And we never pondered the question why Hong Kong is the most free place in the universe. Um, and I've been thinking that Hong Kong, the freedom is actually very fragile. It was under a very unlikely circumstances that made Hong Kong the free place that we know of. And when the circumstances changed, um, that reality changed. We had this saying a long time ago, Hong Kong is a place of a borrowed place in a borrowed time. Perhaps it, that you know, overdrawn credit has been uh, recalled by um, China, unfortunately. Let's talk a little bit about Jimmy Lai. You know, of course, he's in jail as we speak. You probably have other friends who are in prison as we speak for just basically following the rules that existed not a few years ago, right? Jimmy once told me the fight for freedom is a very lonely pursuit. So uh, he said you have to be prepared to be very lonely. Another thing I, I vividly remember was when I was leaving Hong Kong, I sent Jimmy a text message. I told him, sorry, um, I don't feel safe to stay in Hong Kong. I, I'm leaving and I'm not writing anymore because I don't see the point. I cannot change Hong Kong through writing. Then why should I write? And po putting people in danger just because of what? I mean, I cannot, I cannot find a reason why I keep on writing. So I said, I gave up this, uh, I'm leaving Hong Kong, I'm sorry. And Jimmy was actually quite supportive. He says, no, you should leave. It is not safe. And I asked him, then why are you staying? And he said, no, I cannot. Because that would send a very wrong message to the world that Hong Kong people are giving up. I, am, I cannot give up. And in some other interviews, he, he shared uh, the sentiment. He, he, he said, Hong Kong gave him everything he had. And it was the time that he must give it back to Hong Kong.
It's very interesting. He understood that he was a symbol for people and that he had to be true to that. He knew. He knew it very well. Um, and he knew that in every movement, there are a few things that you cannot give up. You cannot give up the fight, but you cannot give up the moral high ground. And Jimmy says, Jimmy, Jimmy repeatedly says, it has to be a peaceful resistance. It has to be civil disobedience. So um, you must not be on the wrong side of history. I think, well, if I have to think of the bright side of the story, I would say of the 17 years I worked with the gentleman, he is almost always ahead of the time in many things, in business especially. When, when he has like these brilliant ideas, usually he is ahead of the time. So much that technology is not available at the time. I remember in 2008, he said, oh, everyone would be fascinated about virtual reality and 3D animations. We have to have the capability to create um, these 3D generated um, icons so people can represent themselves uh, in videos with these icons. So he spent a lot of money, crazy amount of money to create a 3D animation studio. It was 2008 and only like 13 years after what he had imagined, Meta came up with this plan to go to the metaverse. That was basically his, like Jimmy's kind of conception of the future of the internet. So this guy is always ahead of the time and uh, I, I, I should have hope that he is right also this time and not by a too far margin. I mean, like, just hopefully a few years ahead of the time that the resistance will barefoot. So here's, that, it's interesting that you say that. He's ahead of, he's, he's always ahead of the, the pack, so to speak. Is it fair to say that Hong Kongers in general kind of just didn't really understand what the CCP's end game was, ultimately? CCP has its own end game, which is very different from how Hong Kong people see that. i just give you one example. For a very long time, Whenever people mention about one country, two system, they thought it was intended to make Hong Kong people feel comfortable to become a part of China again. So you have your two system, don't worry. But we must insist on one country. That was most Hong Kong people understanding of the idea. But after these two, three years, my understanding is one country, two system is a firewall that protect the one country and the one system that they have, but at the same time they can access to the international capital market through Hong Kong. That is the other system that they need. So it is a firewall that protects China from changing itself because most of the time if you need to access to the international financial market, you have to change your rules. But under one country, two system, China 
does not need to change anything. So what happened is China successfully transformed its state-owned sector, modernized it without changing the totalitarian culture of the nation. Actually, it becomes even more totalitarian than before, all thanks to the one country, two system. So the firewall protected the China system, but give them the resources from the international capital market. That is one country, two system. And now, the reason why it says, oh, the one country, two system has to change is because they changed the game plan. And Hong Kong people are still believing that one country, two system was about the five, six, seven million people a comfort zone. No, it has nothing to do with your comfort zone. It is their comfort zone that matters. That's really fascinating because, you know, on this show, we often talk about how, um, let's say, pro the progressive vision of the world or the, some, the communist vision of the world redefines terminology to mean something completely different. People think they're talking, even the word racism, for example, right? Things like this. Um, you know, you think you're talking about, you know, stereotyping people based on race, but no, actually, the progressives are talking about something completely different when they say that word. This is the, exactly what happened with one country, two systems. That's fascinating. I'd never heard it said this way. Uh, China, oh, I should say, the Chinese Communist Party they do see things very differently from the world. I, let's take COVID as an example, because everyone experienced COVID. When COVID started, China concerned only on one thing, which is how can they capitalize on this crisis to show the world that China's system is superior to the rest of the world. So if you remember at the early stage of COVID, at the first, second or second wave of COVID, China built a, a quarantine hospital in a week and then they propagandized the achievement as this is the Chinese efficiency. And when other countries lock down, they say, now this is the way to go. We, China, m control the disease from spreading your countries, like Western world, should learn from us on how to manage the disease. So whenever other countries lock down, but they failed, and then the China will say, look, this is the failure, the weaknesses of the Western democratic institution, because you cannot get things done. This is, this is how they see things, and yeah. Well, there's, a, there's a huge irony in this, okay, because this, these lockdowns are the ap possibly the absolute worst possible policy that you could enact to deal with this virus in the first place. So it's, it's kind of fitting what you describe here, right? But somehow they fooled the rest of the world. Maybe some people wanted to believe it, that this was a good way to go. And, and in later stage, when the um, when rest of the world beginning to ask a few questions on, hey, where does the virus originate to begin with? And then China was so like, delusional that they, they tried to put out this uh, like, fake news and propaganda campaign. 
about like the U.S. Uh, troops um, joining the games, spreading the disease, um, and Maryland, the Fort Dietrich, and all sorts of fake news coming from the China official state-owned propaganda machine. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, no, fortunately, I should say, the world didn't buy into this like BS. And what happened was China insisted on the new zero COVID policy. This is how I see zero COVID. China insisted on zero COVID because they want to tell the world that if you have people dying from the disease, it was because your government is incompetent. And look at what China has done. We have zero COVID. So it is possible to have people surviving the disease as long as you have a strong government. So they still insist on promoting this authoritarian framework to the world. And I think the world has learned the lessons. The world is not only immune to COVID. The world is actually more immune to the crazy idea that you need a strong government to keep people healthy. Well, I, I hope you're right, okay? Because uh, I hope for a I'm long right. time, <laughs> no, but this is this is incredibly important, actually, because you know, to, to take any any country, my home country of Canada here, um, you know, a lot of people believed that this this type of policy was the right way to go. They were actually inspired by, I guess, by what the Chinese Communist Party did, and thought that this was the right way. Of course, you know, with time. We can see the terrible costs, the real costs in human terms of these policies. And, you know, there's increasingly more awareness of that, the, that this type of authoritarian policy ha uh, can destroy, frankly, destroy society, right? You know, school closures, I can go down the list. But, but it's, we're not quite there yet. There's still a lot of society that kind of thinks here in Canada and many other countries like that, that was a good way to go. And maybe we should even go back to it if there's another wave. It's less and less every day, but that's where we're at. History repeats itself, right? I don't want to finger point on a few individuals like Anthony Fauci. Uh, I think Lenin would say he is kind of the useful idiot that promotes <laughs> something that he personally does not even know. He thought he is defending against the virus, but he is introducing an ideological virus of totalitarianism to his nation. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a scientific issue. Whether people can develop the immunity, whether your healthcare system can cope with the disease, that is a very objective scientific issues. But how you can achieve those measures, it is another matter. And I think they have to distinguish the means to the ends. And But at the end of the day, what is the end of a good society? A good society does not mean that, like the China's zero COVID vision of no one dying ever. Come on. It is a cost-benefit issues. I'm not saying like human lives does not matter. Personal responsibility matters. When people ask, like my kids ask me, 
what do I think about mass mandates? I say, if you want to protect yourself, if you think masks can protect you, you should be free to choose to wear masks or not. You should be free to choose the people that you associate with, whether they want to wear masks or not. It is up to the premise, to the school, to decide what they need to do. Some people make mistakes. I'm pretty sure some people make mistakes. But if you mandate it from top down for the whole nation, believing that then no one will die, that is the biggest mistake you can make. And this is what we learned from the past two, three years. And fortunately, because we are still living in a free, open society, we can learn. Well, so let, let me build on this a little bit, okay? So to me, as you describe how the CCP operated, it's really, you know, ideology trumps all semblance of reality, okay? Ideology first, the hell with everything else. I'm worried that that mindset, that approach, is something that is kind of seeping in here in our free world. What are your thoughts? They're always useful idiots, right? But the important thing is having people like you working on telling the narrative, the stories, and letting people know, I won't say reality, that's too big a word. Yes. Letting people know different perspectives. Um, sometimes I think it is more important to see the wrong side of the story than to see the right side of the story because we never know the right side. But we know what is definitely wrong. I, I always look at the positive side. Um, for whatever China is doing, I think it is the greatest opportunity for us to see, hey, if you want a government that can give you everything and can take away everything from you, that is China. China is showing us what a totalitarian country can become. And, well, for those people who believe in the China model, I do have one suggestion for them. Go there, they welcome you. They welcome you. So, and this is where the conversation, to me, becomes somber because we can see what happens when you know, a free society is forced to become China, basically, under the Communist Party. And that's in your home country, I'll say, in your home city. During the resistance movement, I think one, there are a few things we learn. There are a few things that we, we hold really dear. Number one, it is not really about us like uh, overthrowing the Communist Party. That it has never been what we wanted to do. Because at the end of the day, the nation probably chose Communist Party for the wrong reason or whatever. They didn't even choose like, like consciously. But over a hundred years uh, of um, revolutions and then um, the World War, even if it was not the Communist Party, if it was the nationalists who took over, probably we would end up in some kind of totalitarian regime 
we might have a milder form of totalitarianism, but it is still a, an author, authoritarian totalitarians mix. Okay, what happened in Hong Kong was we just wanted to be left alone. It is not about overthrowing a, a regime that is governing 1.4 billion people. We, we totally understand that. We are rational. But at the end, they thought that Hong Kong, a small place with a whole bunch of people who just wanted to be left alone, is a threat. And I think that is the message to the world. If Hong Kong can be seen by the CCP as a threat, the United States is a much bigger threat. And guess what the Chinese Communist Party want to do with the United States? Do you think they can leave the United States alone? No, they cannot. It is in the nature to destroy everything that represents freedom. They wanted to destroy freedom of their own people and of the people of other nations, consciously, intentionally. Well, for, for people who are interested in the topic, I would suggest them to go back to look at an, a term called the Beijing Consensus, which was promoted since 2004 by another useful idiot who believed that the world could be run differently under a kind of authoritarian regime that is more efficient than the Western democratic ideals. I suggest people to look up the whole story about the Beijing Consensus because that is when China started to be more assertive about their position in the world. It didn't even start with Xi Jinping. It preceded Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is a creature of the system. Xi Jinping does not create the system. He was created by the system. Why is this little Hong Kong such a huge threat as a free city to the CCP? Why? Firstly, Hong Kong provided an alternative for people, for Chinese people. Hong Kong shows that Chinese can live in a free society and prosper. And when Chinese in an authoritarian regime and, and cannot prosper, then everyone will ask the question, why can't we be more like Hong Kong? That the same logic goes for Taiwan. Taiwan shows that Chinese can have a functioning democratic society open and have a free civil society that advocates for the people. When things are not going right in China, like now, with the implosion of the economic uh, real estate bubble, and people try to protest and then being cracked down, they will ask, why can't we be more like Taiwanese? Having this certain humble but free life. I think Hong Kong and Taiwan shows first and foremost to people in China that they deserve better. And secondly, show the world what is possible for China. And they have to eliminate Hong Kong and Taiwan so that they, at least they can tell the world that there is only one possibility for Chinese society, which I don't agree. I think 
there are many different possibilities for China, for Chinese. Communism, totalitarianism is not the only answer. Well, and just by extension, you know, I, I think you can kind of take that to a larger scale. You're saying it can only be the one system for Chinese. Well, the, at a bigger scale, it, there can only be that one system for everyone, perhaps. Thank you for asking this question. This is exactly what Xi Jinping wants to project to the world when he says he is building not only a rejuvenation of the nation, but also building a collective destiny for the whole human race. He wants to tell the world that the China model is more superior. That This is why in their rhetorics, they keep saying the superiority of the China model and how crappy it is for the Western model. Sometimes I don't know if all these propaganda outside China was meant for consumption by the Chinese, but they are saying all these things and there might be a few useful ideas in outside of the world believing that and keep saying, oh yeah, China is doing the right thing. Like, in what way? <laughs> I, I do, from time to time I find people who are very dissatisfied with the, the status quo in America and say, yeah, maybe we should learn from China. And then I ask them, like, in what way? They say, no, China is actually free. I was like, yeah, really? In what way? I, I dare to challenge all these people who think China is more free than America. I'm doing these things now here in America, saying these things, right? If they can do the same thing in China openly, then I will keep my mouth shut for the rest of my life. This is what I can promise them, if they can do that freely. In Chinese, please. Of course, there's one of the biggest challenges, I think, America and frankly the West right now faces is a whole lot of people believing that it's fundamentally irrevocably bad in all sorts of ways, right? And of course there's a whole ideology that underpins this. This is very dangerous. I don't know if they're thinking that the China model is the, is the good replacement. I don't frankly think they have a replacement in mind. I've had the privilege of having lived and worked in many different places under many different systems. And I, I just think a lot of people here don't really understand what they have, <laughs> imagining that it's so terrible. I don't think there is heaven on earth. There's no perfect system. You only have the least worst system, so to speak. And if we compare that, the least worst system, then I do not think what is going on in China is better than the rest of the world by any standards. You just go to ask a normal Chinese if they have the choice, what would the world be like? I don't think they will say, um, well, I like what we have now in China, just don't change anything. I don't think anyone will say that. Of course, in America, you do have people who want to change things, but please, don't make America more like China. You can make America to be anything. You can make America more like Switzerland, I don't know, but not like China, please. You can make America more like Hong Kong in the past, not now.
but you can make America more like anything you can imagine, but just not China. I want to think back for a moment to, you know, we're, we were talking about these lockdown policies now in, uh, of course, in Shanghai and other places, you know, millions upon millions of people locked down. The economic cost of that, um, you know, obviously exacerbating the kind of the economic realities that, you're, that you've been describing in the real estate market and so forth. But it, it just struck me, and someone, uh, a guest a few, uh, few shows before this one mentioned this, that somehow Xi Jinping and the Communist Party has made the zero COVID lockdown policy the success story of the Communist Party. They've linked those two things together. This, was, this is what was suggested. And that's the reason that they cannot get off of this policy, irrespective of the massive cost that it's bringing to the country as we speak. What are your thoughts? This is the, this is the thesis. Okay. Alternative theory is China has been in the decline economic-wise for a very long time. China has a lot of economic problem internally. Okay, you're going to have to qualify this because everyone's saying, oh, China's like, you know, beating the U.S. This is like China's on top. What are you talking about here, Simon? <laughs> okay. Um, since 2015, that was uh, the last stock market crash in China. And it was brutal. It was really bad. It was like the worst stock market crash in the China's uh, very short uh, financial history. Okay. After 2015, what happened was China, as most nations would do, um, loosen the credits substantially, just try to keep the capital market afloat. The unintended consequences from the loosening of the Chinese capital market was this real estate bubble. So beginning in 2016, that was like one year after the stock market crash, the Chinese government says, oh, no, 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 we have to cool down the uh, real estate bubble. It is not sustainable. I'm talking about 2016. It was way before COVID, even before the trade war with uh, President Trump. President Trump was just elected in 2016. So in 2016, the, the, the massive real estate bubble started to build up, especially in the second tier and third tier cities. There's a good reason for that because the China's macroeconomic policy tried to favor those rural areas because the first tier city benefited from the trade and uh, foreign exchange income. But for the second tier city, they cannot. And the Chinese government did not want them to compete with the first tier city in uh, manufacturing industry because they don't want to lower the, the uh, profit margin of the existing people and etc. etc. So what they can do was to extend the credits to the second tier city, which is where the real estate bubble was most serious and it is now uh, beginning to, to collapse. Starting from last year, 2021, the Chinese Communist Party says, no, it is out of control. Then they have to 
restrict the credits to the real estate developers in these areas. So the real estate developers was the first to fall. Evergrande was the first, or it's the biggest as well, because they are over-leveraged. It is true that they are over-leveraged, but the reason being they have the situation where you have this over-leveraged real estate developers was because the Chinese government started the, the economic cycle to begin with. So, now, these bigger issues, bigger economic systemic issues started years ago, before COVID, before everything. It had, I, I'm pretty sure the COVID lockdown has tremendous influ, uh, impact on economic performance. Look at what happened in Shanghai. Shanghai's GDP in the first quarter, uh, in the second quarter this year, was negative 11.4%, if I remember it correctly. It is like by far the worst all over the world. Shanghai is the size of a mini nation. We have to bear in mind this. So we are talking about a place where it's suffering from a massive recession already. We're we talking about first tier cities. And the second tier city, you have a bubble collapsing. It is a financial crisis by default. So I don't know. Probably they will, they will reverse the uh, credit policy. Actually, central government has been loosening credits since earlier this year. But it does not really help at all. Nothing. So the property developers cannot deliver and people are stopping their mortgage payment because once you cannot get your home, why are you paying for it? And the bank suffers. So now you have three parties in, 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 in this crisis. It is way worse than what we see in 2008 in America. Much worse. Well, Many times. And, and, you know, this isn't the only industry that's over-levered massively. I mean, there's so many yes. in China, right? That's the reality. So you're saying you think this might be the perfect storm now. It is. And, and think about that. If you have, in 2008, what happened in 2008 and coincide with an election year, what would happen? Well, if it is in America... Pretty much you expect a different party will be in, in, in power. But in China, it will be the same Communist Party. So, um, I don't know. This is actually a year of power transition. So, and you're basically saying that you think that the Chinese people might take out their dissatisfaction in a different way. Um, because there's no, obviously, it's not going to be through election. Yep. They cannot, they cannot go to the ballot box. Then they go to the cell phones, and now they cannot go to the cell phones because all the cell phones are monitored and censored. They cannot go to the street because of this health code regimen. Like they cannot go out from, the, from their home. Once the local authority says, okay, everyone is locked down, and they send the code to your cell phone, then you cannot leave your home. So you cannot go to the street, you cannot go onto the internet. What do you do? Some people kill themselves, but some people 
they have this anger and they can they have nowhere to turn the anger to so you see china nowadays is a very angry nation whenever you have something wrong people get angry they can be angry about anything it is like Orwellian uh, plot the two minutes hate every day every day they find something to be angry about it can be anything so it is a very dangerous psychologically speaking it is a very dangerous situation you have a whole nation of depressive bipolar people <laughs> going to do crazy stuff fascinating i haven't I haven't really heard this the, this framing of this this whole situation before so well where do you see things going right now <sighs> this is a very hard question the other day i was thinking compared to the early 20th century, when China was at the juncture of becoming modernized, that was the end of the Qing Dynasty. There was a, a very short period of time where Chinese thought about, can we be more open, free society? The intellectual back then talks about hey, what kind of model we should adopt. But at, the, at that point of time, of course, the most fashionable model that you can copy from are either the Germany or the Japan, which both of them actually evolved after the Second World War. China missed the opportunity to become modernized the first time before World War II and second time after the World War II. There, there are many narrow corridors of China becoming a free, open society. In 1980s, that was one opportunity. We missed that again. I don't know, when you missed the opportunity for so many times, does it mean that you will never get it? I don't know. I, 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 I just don't have the answer to that. Well because they did modernize technologically, right? They modernized technologically, but not ideologically, perhaps. It is like giving a whole bunch of in, like, people in ancient world. Think about if you give a whole bunch of AK-47 to ancient Romans, what would they do? They take the guns and then kill people around them. The problem is if you give a society, a civilization, something way advanced of their stage of development, it is not a good thing. You want the civilization to progress institutionally rather than technologically. You want the both of the progress goes hand in hand. If you go like, I, I don't want to give nuclear weapon to um, people living 400 years ago. That would be disastrous. Even if you give nuclear weapon to a British monarch 400 years ago, we might not have America today. <laughs> they would just nuke George Washington, right? So you don't want that to happen. You want, you want the civilization to really evolve and actually, 
even the American evolved over years. I, I remember back in the 90s, we talked about a lot of things, but if you look at where we are now, we are not only technologically more advanced, I think people are more aware of the fact that, well, some people call this status a very fragmented uh, society. But I would say maybe it is a better form of society where you do not have one centralized ideology, one centralized power, people debate against each other, sometimes maybe more graphical than other, but the world is actually moving towards a more peaceful, more prosperous status than before. But look at China. Time and time again, they missed the opportunity to progress institutionally. Uh, we adopted the wrong model. Everyone makes mistakes. Japan made the mistakes. Germany made the mistake. But look at where they are now. They are doing fine. And there's one thing I want to tell the Chinese people as well. Japan and Germany lost in the Second World War, but the nation remains. A nation is a very hardy stuff. Right? The nation does not disappear after you lose a war. So whenever they talk about the survival of the nation, remember one thing. It is not the survival of the regime that matters to your nation. Your nation is something bigger. If you love your nation, you want it to become more, in, more accepted by other people, not like now. Your nation is actually agitating people around and people are afraid of you. They're not afraid of you. People love Chinese culture. People love the Chinese heritage. They are afraid of the government, which is using your heritage, your culture, for their own political purpose. This is what I want to tell Chinese. I still insist there's no perfect model. There's no perfect nations. The only way to, to progress is to understand what is wrong. We, we, we may not know what is the definite right answer. Whenever someone says, oh, I have a definite right answer for you, be very careful. And that is what the Chinese Communist Party is telling its own people, the rest of the world, that it has the definite answer. I think in America, what we should embrace is, yeah, perhaps we don't know what is the right answer, but you know what? In America, you can experiment, you can try. The, the beauty of the American system is you can have anyone in office, but he is confined by the system. So no matter who is the president, you have half the nation not agreeing with him, but that is okay. That is the beauty of the system, right? So um, in China, you don't know how many people are not happy with the supreme leaders, and that is the problem. At least we know half the nation doesn't like Joe Biden and half the nation doesn't like Trump, but it's fine.
that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, Simon Lee, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you all for joining Simon Lee and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.